We are doing such incredible thought leadering right now. Hello, Internet. You've found yourself listening to Not Code. Uh, so we've got two guests uh, today uh, talking with us. We have uh, none other than Ernie Miller himself um, and uh, Chad Fowler, and they're going to be talking to us a bit, a little, a little bit about uh, humane development. But I thought we'd start off by just getting to know them a little bit. Um, so we'll start with Ernie. Uh, can you give us a little bit of your your background and and kind of maybe why why we've got you here? Sure, I am a human being. I live on the planet Earth. Uh, uh, so I guess the reason you have me here is that uh, I started rambling a lot on my blog recently about about uh, a topic I'm calling humane development. Uh, the general uh, idea being that uh, I think that the way that we do development in a lot of organizations today is not very sustainable. Um, also, as a side note, I am currently thinking about all this stuff because I am director of engineering at Envisium, an application security company, and this is the first time I've ever been a director of anything, and so it's just got me thinking about how to build a, a team and a, a culture that I can, I can get behind and, and stick with for the long term. Excellent. And uh, Chad, how about you? Who are you and what are you doing here? I'm... Uh... I am probably the world's leading expert in Ernie Miller, and so I came for backup <laughs> in case Ernie forgot anything. Uh, it, by day, I am CTO at Wonderlist. I live in Berlin, in Germany. Um, and really, I see this as an interview of Ernie Miller, uh, and I just, I just wanted to hear what was happening firsthand and maybe ask my own questions and contribute my own ideas. Ernie and I seem to have similar ideas uh, I think I made a comment recently on Twitter when he posted something. I read one of his blog posts and thought, hey, this looks like we're writing about all the same stuff lately. Um, coincidentally, Ernie and I worked together at Living Social in, our, in the job that we both had kind of prior to this one, uh, though we didn't really interact much at all. He, he had to listen to me talk because I was the boss in that context. <laughs> so hopefully he's learned some things not to do from me that we'll talk about today. <laughs> Interestingly enough, that that conversation on Twitter was exactly why um, I I prompted Ernie to get in touch with you because um, I saw yeah, I saw the connection that you made between some of the humane development stuff that Ernie's been writing and talking about and and some of, of your stuff, and so I thought it would be interesting to have um, have an, another voice in the conversation. So hopefully we can have some. Not not just a, an Ernie Miller interview, but also just a little discussion around humane development. Uh, but it seems at this point it's worthwhile to unpack um, what we mean when we say humane development. Um, because I was asked this week, what is a humane and how do I develop it? Sure. So um, I think, you know, in terms of, you know, originally I actually was calling it uh, human-driven development, which just didn't have the same ring to it, wasn't really conveying what I was, what I was aiming to convey. Uh, humane, um, you know, because we always turn to the dictionary immediately to define everything, right? Um, humane is supposedly uh, about inflicting the minimum of pain. Um, it's... Uh, more to the to the point of what I was trying to focus on uh, with the idea of humane development. Uh, the idea being that um, first and foremost, we need to be more about the people, the the humans uh, involved in building the software. And I think that if you get the right human beings together in a room, um, and they they are, <clears throat> hey, good morning. Uh, <clears throat> If, if the people together in the room are, in fact, uh, well-intentioned, if they, if they kind of follow this kind of basic framework for being a decent human being, um, then it gets you a long way toward building quality software without focusing so much on building uh, kind of heavyweight processes around it. Um, I kind of decided that I'm more interested in hiring the kind of people that I want to work with 
and that I believe to uh, have similar goals to myself. And, you know, the engineering thing is, yeah, they, you know, they need to have some talent there. They need to have some interest there. But if we've learned one thing from the the prevalence of, of boot camps and, and the like at this point, it's that people can be taught to code. They don't have to have that background. And I don't want to speak for Chad, but neither, neither Chad or I actually have a degree in, in software engineering. So it's, it's not really necessary to have that to build quality software. Um, and then I guess lastly, the, uh, the frustration that I have with so-called agile processes that, um, as it turns out these days, are agile in name only, but have kind of shifted back towards um, focus on tooling and, and, and heavyweight sort of uh, set-in-stone processes that don't feel... I think uh, somebody was telling me lately they call it uh, scrumfall uh, is, the, is the term, and that's, uh, that seems to be an, an adequate way to describe it. It's interesting within the context of... Uh, was it last year's declaration that Agile is dead, long live agility? Um, that we're we're running away from these names again, uh, and and we've found ourselves well, and 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 here we are, you coining a name. What what was the real problem that you found yourself in that that kind of coalesced these? I, I realize coming coming into a position um, as a as a head of engineering, but what what were the problems that you saw that led to this kind of need for this to be out on paper and, and now in, in speaking form, you're taking this the show is, on the road. This is where we hear what not to do that he learned from me. Go ahead, Ernie. <laughs> no, not at all. So, and I, you know, I don't want to kind of repeat the stuff uh, in the talk or in the blog post uh, verbatim, but at the same time, you know, one of the big things I started reflecting on was, you know, what, what makes me leave an organization? Because, um, we as software developers um, don't have the most terribly great reputation for sticking around very long. And I am not really an exception to that rule, at least in recent history. And so I thought, well, if I want to build a place that makes me want to stay, um, maybe I can look at the counterexamples first and what has made me want to leave in the past. Um, and I look back to um, probably the worst job I ever had, and I say that with... Uh, fairly a high degree of certainty that uh, I had a, a CEO that was um, was over me that was actually saying to me at one point when I was frustrated with um, the amount of kind of overhead that I that I had in my day job um, kind of management and and not really focusing on on engineering uh, he told me that I was thinking about it all wrong and that uh, I was still doing engineering but the people were the objects in the system and I thought that that was fundamentally uh, incorrect, right? You can't, you can't look at people as objects. If there's one thing I've learned as a volunteer counselor, it's that, that people are messy, and that's okay. I mean, it makes them interesting. It's, uh, it's kind of what makes uh, a conglomeration of people kind of a beautiful thing to observe, right, is that they're all so quirky. And so I thought that this was, he was perhaps uh, teaching me something without, intending to, which is that, you know, while that is an undiluted view of, of, uh, of things that is maybe more intense than most organizations, I think most organizations tend to abstract the human element out of the process and try very hard to approach. I mean, it's, it's the mythical man month stuff, right? It's that, that idea that if we put a certain number of people on a problem, we get X number of story points out of them. And this is how we build software. And while I understand the need for measurability, I think that that um, deprives us of some of the, the, the beauty inherent in um, a system of interaction. It's funny, it's funny, Ernie, that you say that uh, it was this uh, assertion that a, an organization is like a system and the people are objects, that that was the thing that turned you off sufficiently to launch into this uh, type of thinking because for me, uh, as a manager, there was a certain point when I realized, uh, and I'm saying this as someone I think who is fundamentally aligned with your ideas and with the your whole humane development thing, there was a point at which I mm -hmm. realized that a sufficiently large, complicated group of people is a system, and the way that I think about designing systems should apply to designing an organization. And if I forget those fundamental things that I've already learned from systems design, 
then I will make the same sorts of mistakes in organizational design. Um, mm -hmm. However, I think that we can do this. I think we can say the organization is a system without saying the people are objects. Or, yes. or perhaps they can be objects, but we just have a different uh, a de definition of what that means, you know. Um, right. You know, I think of them more as actors, and I say that in both the system sense and the literal sense of the word, the normal literal sense of the word actor, that they're, they're complex systems with chaos built in. Um, but, like, in the job where Ernie and I worked together, my team was in the hundreds at the end, and although I do care about individuals, I couldn't think about individuals all the time in that job mm -hmm. in the same way that I can't remember every line of code I've written in a system. I have to maintain some ab abstract version of it, and I can go into the lines of code if I have to, and I can care about the specifics if I have to. Uh, but when I'm, when I'm trying to develop an organizational operational process or a flow or just a mental model for how to get things done, I do think of it as a system and in that kind of abstract way. And I hope I do that without becoming inhumane. I think so. I think they can go together, you know. Right. And that's one of the things I unpacked in the talk a little more is what I mean by treating people as objects. It's not so much... It's the objectification part that bothers me, not the idea that we need to build a sustainable system, something that we can, you know, uh, roll with for, you know, some unknown period of time. Um, and in particular, and it's funny you use the term actors because I think, you know, the, the actor model is much better focused on messaging than for whatever reason, unfortunately, the unfortunately named object-oriented programming was. And so, you know, I bring up in, in the talk actually about how uh, OOP is all about the messages and it's all about communication really and you know streamlining that and determining what kind of you know contracts you want to have with one another about what you're going to going to send or not send um, and so in a very real case that's what really processes should be um, if you're going to have a process it's more like a compression algorithm for your for your messages it's we see this happening over and over therefore we we say it once and refer to it by reference to make uh, to raise the signal to noise ratio of communication in the organization. It's a, it's actually kind of fascinating because I, I did a talk a, a little while ago on um, your team as, as as a distributed system, basically applying cap theorem to your team, and I think that's the interesting thing. It, it tends to be the transport layers that tend that you can systematize, but it, the nodes, the people, they are unique and special mm -hmm. and have their own, like they require the unique nurture and care and empathy. Um, whereas the transport layers, the way that you kind of pass messages, the way that you um, handle, you know, lossy communications, that you handle part network partitions, whatever it is, is, is what you tend to, what is lends itself to system, system to being systemized um, over, uh, over the people. And, and I think that the other thing that, that objectification, to me, what really resounded out of, I, I actually got to, to watch your Mountain West, um, the recording of your Mountain West Ruby talk, Ernie, was like that when you start objectifying people, they become replaceable kind of widgets in your system. And so it, it, it goes into that human resource mindset of this is just a replaceable object in your system. And if they walk away because we make them upset, you know, then we will just replace them with another widget and we will keep on replacing them with another widget because there is an infinite number of widgets coming out of the widget factory. Yeah, what, uh, what, you're, what you're talking about, actually, uh, Tom, DeMarco wrote, Tom DeMarco wrote about in his book Slack. And if you haven't read that book, it is very much worth reading if you're interested in managing teams. Um, he talks about the fallacy that resources are fungible resources being people and fungible, meaning they can be just replaced, uh, you know, swapped out for each other. So the, that's one of the kind of key uh, cornerstones of, of that book. And I, I can totally empathize with the need for an organization to be resilient to somebody leaving or, or, you know, things happen, people get hit by beer trucks, you know, you need to have some level of resiliency to that. Um, you know, at the same time, it's it's very important to recognize that it is valuable to maintain that that ongoing relationship with a person. It's 
it's funny that we call it an employment relationship, but we don't think the normal rules involved in relationships apply, really. I want to dig into this a little bit uh, as you guys are both in senior leadership roles. And one of the things that I was reflecting on and looking at all of this humane development stuff is like, this is, this is totally a blog post that I would have sent to a manager at a previous workplace. And it would have probably been filed in the round file, like a, a hundred other blog posts. Is there any way that, that this kind of these humane development ideals can come from the bottom up or are these the, the kind of things that tend to have to come from the top down? So, um, I don't know if the question is for me, but, uh, I guess I'll start. Um, I think the first thing is, yes, they're on, on a small scale. You can choose to sort of live and work by these principles uh, and try to demonstrate that they, that they can get you somewhere. But if you aren't in uh, some sort of a leadership position, um, you're going to have limited success without support from you. That is, okay, you can't go to your, to your manager and say, this deadline is complete BS. Uh, there is no reason for it to, be, to exist. Um, and then at the same time, you know, not have a, a manager who's invested in kind of showing, showing empathy and being honest with you about that. Yes, that deadline is complete BS and I'm going to push that, you know, up the chain and see, see what we can do about making it more reasonable, reasonable. Um, but on a smaller scale, you know, certainly in your interactions, you can endeavor to show the the benefit. I mean, these are not things that sh- it should be onerous to practice anyway. That is at least the the core tenets, the idea that we should show empathy to one another, we should be honest, we should be trusting, and uh, and that we should try to do as much as we can autonomously. I mean, I don't think these are these are things that are <laughs> sort of hostile to any workplace. Uh, the autonomy one might be a stretch, but. Uh, you know, in some cases in that replaceable widget kind of world. But uh, I think these are things that we can The autonomy one might actually <laughs> not work that well in the small. Like it, it might lead to the wrong behaviors mm-hmm. if, you're, if you're trying right. to apply it to yourself as an individual because it might mean I'm going to work by myself and not be collaborative or, you know. I, I really do think autonomy is something that has to come from the top, whatever that means, you know, whoever is technically in control of an organization has to grant autonomy uh, in exchange for accountability. But as an individual, mm-hmm. it's a little harder to, to decide that you want to practice it. I do think that honesty right. and empathy uh, are way harder to do. Like you said onerous and, and you really meant like they wouldn't cause a problem in an organization, but they're extremely hard to do even when you're committed to do them. You have to practice, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it turns out it's kind of hard to be a good human after all. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I think, I think that it's, it's funny, though, that, that autonomy would be something. One of the things that I talked about with, um, so I talked with a, a guy named Ray Hightower uh, when I was at um, Ancient City Ruby last week. And we were talking about the uh, uh, principles, the humane development principles, those four that, that are listed on the site that we just talked about. And I sort of see them as a chain um, in that if you remove any one of them, then it, it doesn't work. That is, um, you can't jump straight to autonomy without trust. And without demonstrated honesty, it's very difficult to achieve trust. And, you know, without empathy for a situation, you may not see the, you know, the effects that dishonesty, even in the small, has on your, your teammates and so forth. So I sort of see them as, as tightly interrelated. And uh, uh, if you remove one, it, it does definitely become a problem. And so if you don't have trust from your, from your superiors, it's going to be very, very difficult to get to that end game. Yeah, that, that's definitely the thing. And, and that, that empathy... Um, probably is one of the hardest things to do when you are feeling like your back is up against the wall, uh, being under stress and feeling, um, feeling backed in a corner. Our go-to is not to reach for empathy. Our go-to is often to lash out and to, uh, I mean, I, I can speak for myself and say I've felt in that position and I have had some very destructive conversations with senior management because of how I was feeling. I, di- I didn't treat them as people. 
and uh and now seeing that like i think some of it is i have grown up a bit but also just being able to to reflect on that and reflect on that situation and and think well what what would the empathetic thing have been to do there because like the majority of software engineers are not in soft in senior positions um that if we if that were the case then there would be something very <laughs> wrong um the majority of, of software engineers are in in, in positions where they're reporting to someone who may or may not be a pointy head boss. Um, the question is, how do we, how do we uh, take those first steps of empathy to, to hopefully encourage a culture of, of humane development within our workplaces? Well, and is there about, I mean, and I ask this honestly, you know, I struggled and I kind of dodged your question about coming up with a name for, for it and giving it a name uh, a while back. And I really struggled with that because it's like, yeah, anything that's given a name, as Chad's written about before, can can be sort of corrupted and, and just adopted in adopted in name only. And you know, I I don't what I what I tried to do um, with humane development was build in sort of antibodies to that. That is, it's um, it's actively it's almost process hostile. That is, uh, you know, we look at. If you look at, uh, and it's one of the things the guys at uh, 37 Signals now, uh, Basecamp, uh, wrote about some time ago, about making features prove themselves, right? You know, your, your default answer is no, and if, and if it turns out that, that a feature is worthwhile, it'll keep coming up. And I think it's sort of the same thing. You kind of have to fight against process for process's sake, kind of that uh, uh, organizational scar tissue, I think it's been called. Um, that process can become. And, and so I think that, you know, as I've been kind of, um, kind of formulating and uh, kind of refining these, these thoughts that have gone into it. Um, one of the things that I've tried very hard to do is to make it so that to, to look at it another way. Um, the agile manifesto, if you go look at that today, um, they're all, and, and and oddly enough, when I wrote the original uh, Humane Development post, I hadn't really looked at the, you know, if you click on a link underneath the the four kind of uh, parts of the, the 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 values of the Agile Manifesto, there's a, a principles of uh, of Agile software, and uh, the, look at the twelve principles, and aside from uh, uh, which made sense in two thousand one, a kind of emphasis on face to face communication, most of them are directly in line with, you know, what we're talking about today. It's not that the, the values are wrong or the principles are wrong. It's that they're not really being practiced. It's that they lent themselves to, I mean, they were written by people who had consulting practices. They had to be actively supportive of business. They had to, uh, try to supposedly, you know, heal that supposed divide between, between the business and, and the developers. And so they had to acknowledge well, no, there's value in these things, but there's more value in this other thing. But I think, you know, while I'm not saying processes are not valuable, and if you've seen the talk, you would see that's that's the case. What I am saying is that we can't make, you know, process you know, part of our, you know, kind of core core value system. That, that it doesn't belong in, in our list of values at all because it's going to end up shifting back there. The business will embrace and extinguish as the business does. So I want to talk a little bit about that gap and about the business um, and, and that divide because uh, having moved across from, from a very large business to a small business, but still having the concept of the business, um, how, that's a, it's a really interesting thing I've I realized of what, why, and I, I'd like to ask you, Chad, why do you feel like, or, or do you feel like, um, there is a natural divide between, um, between the business and, and the tech side of, of what's being built, especially in product businesses, like, like, the one um, you're working in. Well, in our business, there is no natural divide. Well, I guess there is. There always is. Um, the natural divide, it's stupid. I think it mostly comes from programmers and tech people, actually. They talk about the business. Business people don't talk about the business as a separate entity because we're all in it. It's like if you're working for a business 
to uh, to act as if you're not part of the business means you're not contributing to what the thing does. So that's just idiotic. But we all do it, and I think it's it comes partially from uh, um, what's the right word? I'm so bad at English these days, and it's not because I'm le learning German. It's just because I'm bad at English. Uh, conceit. You know, like the business people don't know how our stuff works. They're not smart enough. They they ask us stupid questions about what software should do, and they just don't understand how the internet works and blah, 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 blah. So it creates this divide where we're the smart ones and they're the idiots that just do stuff that anyone could do. They're the business and we're the tech, tech people. Um, but also, I, th I think what actually happens is there is a bit of um, insecurity on the programmer side. At least I can say that speaking from experience. That, like, I, as a young person, a young programmer, I would go to these all-employee meetings for a division of the large corporation I was in. They would use all these acronyms, and I would just think, "What the hell is this? It just sounds like gibberish." garbage why you know they're saying these things i don't even understand and everyone's clapping like they're a bunch of morons um but actually what was happening is i didn't understand what they were saying because i was uneducated i would get, then go back to my desk and talk about object-oriented programming and design patterns and like flyweight pattern and model view controller and all these things that if you say them to someone who's not a programmer sound like a bunch of crazy gibberish but the reaction from the business side when that happens is actually not one where you assume that the programmers are stupid. It's more one that you're afraid. So, you know, it's it's a little more raw, I think, that, that non-programmers surrounded by conceited programmers using words they don't understand are terrified by those people. They know they need those people. They know they're never going to become it not because they're incapable, though they may feel like it, but really because they don't have enough of an interest. And therefore they're dependent on these weird, hostile, separate people that sometimes look different, but certainly want to, to create a divide. I think it all springs from insecurity though. Uh, and, and, and like ultimately the reason that I think this humane development thing is interesting is all of this stuff, insecurity and everything, is rooted in a lack of ability to empathize with the people you're working with. So whether it's your boss or your coworker or your business client or partner or whatever, you forget that they're a human and you think of them as this dumb cog that plays a certain role. But when you flip it around and you realize to them you're a different type of cog that plays a different role in their system and they are the center of the universe from their perspective, because let's face it, that's how people think, then it necessarily changes how you view the world. Like, but it, it's painful. It's painful especially to take like the person that you have the least respect for or that you hate the most that you've ever worked with. You know, the, the worst company Ernie ever worked for, the CEO, empathize with that guy and try to put yourself in his position and try to understand what it, what it is to be that human saying to you, people are objects, because there probably is a good reason for it. But as humans, we don't, we don't do that all the time because it's painful and it's difficult and, and it's frankly inconvenient. I totally went off track. What was the question? <laughs> no, that's exactly, that's exactly on track because empathy is where it starts, right? And that was the business that, you know, the question was about the, whether or not the business uh, and us have a divide. Uh, you know, and, and it really does come down to, and, you know, we talked about that in the talk as well. Uh, it does come down to recognizing there's not an us and a them in that kind of a sense, you know, we need to understand their side of things. They need to understand our side of things. And that doesn't come from a mission statement. It comes from empathy. Uh, you can't align, uh, uh, a group of people on a, a kind of a fluffy mission statement that just doesn't really, it doesn't work. It sounds good and it looks good on paper, but if they're not exhibiting empathy to one another, then why do we make apart. mission statements then? Like, why is that such a common thing that it's a joke that you chuckle at, you know? Yeah. Does it work somehow? No, well, that's a good Does question. Does it help somehow? I think for some people, uh, I, I think, I think it may be, uh, in some ways, a sort of crutch. I mean, it, it is something that we try to uh, 
put a, you know, we try to put a facade of kind of unity uh, on the face of things. It's something that people, and, and usually the only mission statements that are, that people kind of align around are mission statements that are so vapid as to really say nothing. I worry sometimes about, so this is going to sound, this is me owning my insecurity. Um, when I talk about these, these, these tenets of humane development, I worry about whether there's enough there, there, um, that is, there's a delicate balance between, you know, kind of stating the obvious, uh, and then also the, the feeling that you apparently need to state it because we've lost sight of it. And am I saying something useful? Am I providing something, um, that can at least serve as a guideline? I'm not looking to build, you know, here are, uh, you know, a million processes or, a, you know, the preferred way of doing business so much as, um, you know, here are some ways that we can think about things. Here are some litmus tests we can use to sort of guide our decision making. But it's not here's here's the one process because your human beings are different than my. Yeah. Human so beings. let's go back to the mission statement thing. You said something just now when you were talking about the fear that there's enough there, and that maybe you're stating the obvious, and that maybe you have to state the obvious. The fact is, when you're talking to large groups and you want them to absorb as a group or as a system, back to that idea, uh, some concept, you, can't, you, you have to state the obvious and you have to state it over and over and over again because what's obvious to you isn't obvious to that mass of people. It may be when you go to each individual and you say it to them once, then they just get it, it's obvious. But this is something I've found, even dealing with the most brilliant human beings that I've ever known in a group of hundreds my words don't work as well. And the obvious things that you think are obvious, it turns out when you get like 100 people together, there's some, in, there's some significant percentage of people for whom the obvious is not obvious. So in a way, with humane development, you have created a mission statement, but it serves a different purpose yeah. than a typical... The horror. <laughs> Sorry. But it serves a different purpose no, than true. the typical you know, country mission state or, or company mission statement. Um, how actually it doesn't, I think it serves exactly the same purpose, but to a different audience rather than a company, it's to an industry of people who are managing stuff or whatever that, uh, you're trying to make an impact and you're trying to inject some thoughts, a structure of thoughts, not a process, but a structure of thinking that starts with empathy and flows from there into good behaviors. You're trying to inject that into their thinking enough it won't be 100% of what you have because I don't get 100% of what you have and I know you pretty well, but it's going to be enough that hopefully it's a filter through which they can send their actions before they perform them. Right. That's, that's exactly the target is give them a, you know, there's an analogy I used uh, in the talk um, that our friend, our mutual friend, Glenn Vanderberg had shared with me about how when he learned to drive, um, that his, his father set the book down in front of him and, and said, there are a whole lot of rules in here. Um, but, and there are a few that you might need to memorize, but by and large, um, all of these, all of these rules really revolve around one thing. Make sure that everyone around you knows what you're going to do before you do it. And, uh, there's a very limited ability to communicate in a car. You only have some turn signals and, you know, you're at your brake lights and, you know, you're maybe able to wave or something like that, but you have a very limited amount of communication ability. And so you need to act in a way that, that ensures that people around you know what you're going to do before you do it. Everything else stems from that. And if you follow that guideline, or if you kind of look at things from that angle, a lot of the other rules begin to make sense and you can kind of derive them from that one overarching principle. And I thought that was a really, you know, brilliant way of, of describing kind of what we're aiming for when we build processes. Mm. It kind of reminds me of the golden rule, the the whole do unto others deal. Sure. And and that was kind of where it started, uh, uh, for me anyway. Uh, and it really, that's empathy, right? Because if you can place yourself in their in their shoes, then you can think about how what you just did impacts them. And we, we're so thoughtless. Um, so often in what we do, we're, we're so focused on, and, and Chad uh, mentioned it earlier. I mean, it's like, we are the, we are the star of our own reality television program and everyone else is the extra, right? And, uh, getting around that, you know, 
system of thought that is so typical and that we are afflicted with as human beings. Is it's hard. so hard that, that, for example, Buddhism is entirely about it. I mean, that is really sort of the idea that the, you are, as Buddhists believe that uh, the concept of self is basically the root of all suffering. And the entire philosophy of Buddhism is about trying to escape from that type of thinking. So it's, mm-hmm. I would say it's epically hard. <laughs> <laughs> Empathy is a, is a universal idea. Like that, that's fairly established, but is the pathology that where that humane development is looking to approach is that unique to the software community no it's it's a human thing we are i mean and in fact uh it's it's not it's not specifically i mean it certainly it's geared towards software developers uh in the way that i chose to word it but this really uh all the way well most of it applies to any human being Ever right, like em, em, t- find me a human that shouldn't be more empathetic or more honest, right? You know, prove to me, prove to me where there there that there is in fact such a human, and I would be very surprised. Um, you know, that <laughs> but at the same time, um, I think especially these principles apply to anybody that's in thought work, which was increasingly uh, uh, prevalent in, in, you know, as we move into the future, right? Machines do so much more of the manual labor that we, than they used to. And so you look at even some of the stuff that follows on in humane development, the idea that we can work from anywhere and the, the idea that we can, we can be productive even when we're not necessarily at the office. We can, you know, there's a, um, right now there's a, there's a house being built, um, two, two doors down from me. And, I've been watching with interest this process over the past several months and thinking to myself as I look at the, I mean, it was 20 degrees outside a couple months ago and I was looking at uh, this house waiting for the workers to show up in about 10 minutes or something and, and thinking to myself, they haven't installed plumbing in this house yet. There's no bathroom. There's a, there's an outhouse out here and there are people all congregating on this one place with no bathroom in 20 degree weather and how, how unpleasant that would be. And we don't have to deal as software developers specifically with any of, I mean, we can work from anywhere, from comfort, from the beach, you know, wherever we want. Um, but most people who are working by thinking and don't have to put their hands on something necessarily to accomplish their goal have similar freedoms that we don't, we don't afford them today because there's a culture of distrust and, and sometimes rightfully earned. Um, but, but you have to make, to, you know, everybody needs to take steps to, to earn trust, to be able to do the job in the way that best fits the way they work. So I wanted to talk, to talk a little bit about the, the thought working stuff. So the, the th- you mentioned in your talk the, the three Bs, the, the bed, the bath, and the bus as the, the places um, that we get ideas often as, as software engineers. I mean, I'm presently I'm working from home, and so my transition from uh, from not work to work is actually the shower, which is basically where I start organizing my day. And, and that's where kind of the divergent solutions tend to come out. But is that is part of the problem in as we're gaining, as we are empathizing is part of our problem, a communication problem about what we do. Um, I, I was, I had a chance to be sitting around with some engineers and some, some non-engineers and, um, I was really happy when this uh, engineering leader said to uh, someone that I work with, the best programmer, the most productive programmer that I have is the one that's staring out the window. I like that. That's, that's good. Because is that, that, that is the, the, where the divergent thought happens. But I, I wonder, is part of that gaining that autonomy also about communicating what it is we actually do? Communicating to whom? Dare I say the business? <laughs> I, I was going to say stakeholders, which sounds just as bad, but I think is technically true because it means pe- well, I, I people who well, I, I think it's people it's, who need to know. It's non-technical personnel. Non-technical. Non-technical objects. It's not just non-technical objects. It's also technical objects. Anyone that depends on you in some way, and that can mean so many different things, should know what you're up to. 
that's part of building trust. That's also part of accountability. So I really think that authority and accountability have to go hand in hand. And if they don't, something's wrong. And uh, autonomy and authority are roughly the same thing. Not exactly, but at least closely related. So, uh, sure. yeah, you must, you must communicate to anyone who needs to know and probably to see people who you don't think need to know so that you can establish trust. And that, that is um, what you just said. And I remember thinking in the shower this morning that I should bring this up. And I thank you for reminding me. Um, the, the need to know thing, the, the, the need to communicate. Um, it, I, I find myself frustrated with um, people that believe that uh, all work needs to happen face-to-face or the best work necessarily happens face-to-face. I think that um, face-to-face, and while I enjoy seeing your faces today, and uh, it's been useful in terms of increasing the, the understanding between us, uh, I, I don't necessarily, <laughs> especially now, I wish this was a video podcast at the moment. Um. So, <laughs> for those playing at home, uh, Chad is is providing some informative faces for Ernie. So, so uh, oh, it completely derailed my train of thought. See, I'm so okay, rude. So, so, so anyway, um, the idea that we need to be face to face or in the same room to communicate, um, it's it's useful at times. I find it much more useful for team building activity and creating this kind of camaraderie that we're experiencing right now. Uh, than I necessarily find it to be for getting real work done. But that's largely because I have spent a lot of time working remotely and kind of um, finding it, I find it easier these days to to, to kind of decide and, and understand who needs to know. And that's a, that's a function of empathy too, right? We oftentimes don't think about the impact that our decisions or our choices or the things that we're just currently thinking about are, are having on those around us. And so part of being a good communicator is recognizing you know, and being able to empathize with those, those people in such a way that you can say, you know, this decision that I'm, that I'm taking right now or this, this thought that I'm having, this is going to have a uh, cascading effect on the following people. I should probably communicate this to, to those people. And so it's about finding the right channels for communication, not overdoing it, um, not shotgunning everything out there, but at the same time, um, finding a way to make sure the people who need to know know and getting a better sense of who those people are. And that only happens um, through practice. Um, and I think that sometimes um, it's sort of turning on easy mode. It's, it's uh, whenever, whenever you put everybody in the same room because everybody kind of drowns in over-information. I know working at uh, uh, the, the living social offices, uh, when I would come into the office, I got basically nothing done because we had that kind of open office plan. And, you know, I was drowning in all of this communication happening all around me. And, and so to occasionally somebody would say something that piqued my interest, like I would hear active record or DHH or something that I had opinions on. And, uh, I would, I would very rapidly sort of hone in on that conversation and it wasn't necessarily helpful for what I was trying to accomplish at the time. Um, and so I think that there's a lot of benefit to having the ability to control the channels through which our communication flows. And we don't necessarily have that whenever we're in the I office. think I just came up with an answer while we were talking about this to the question Andrew had earlier about how this can work from the bottom up. But uh, it requires that we establish uh, an understanding of autonomy in humane development that is not written by you anywhere. And that is that as both a non-manager type and as a manager type, autonomy is the goal. So as a manager, it's a little harder to buy, but if, if you're leading a group of people and they can work autonomously, it means you don't have to manage them. And if they can do that effectively, then your job is very easy. So we can sort of stretch and say that that's a goal. Uh, I do believe though, and I've, I've even written about this in the past, that I think most of us in this so-called knowledge work, our desire is freedom. Uh, it's not money, it's not, you know, it's not which technology we're gonna use. We talk about these things in small tactical sense, but, but ultimately like the strategy and the overarching goal that we're after is 
freedom, aka autonomy at work to be creative. And so from a bottom-up perspective, we were both talking about the, the need to empathize, which then leads to honesty, which then leads to the building of trust, which allows us to become autonomous. And that might be the framework. And autonomy is definitely the end goal. It's definitely the goal. Um, and I talk a little bit about that in the, in the talk. Um, unfortunately, the site that I put up <laughs> was more of a, a draft of what I, and it's still too long. It's a, how does it go? I, I would have written a shorter letter, but I didn't have the time to. Um, I, I need to, to kind of clean it up and, and, and make it a bit more concise and uh, then maybe have some pages you can branch off to for more information. Um, but autonomy is definitely, that's the goal, right? It's a linear progression from those, those first three things. You, know, you move from empathy to honesty to trust to autonomy. That's the, that's the goal. And they're not, uh, they're not like sitting side by side in the same sense as they are steps along. Yeah, you could path. even line them up as a chain that maps to your professional development in a career path. Like sure. as sure. as just a separate path that you should practice and try and go to. I mean, I know you can do them all together, but uh, it's an interesting framework. Thank you for that. That's uh this is why I enjoy being able to this talk to This is the entire chat. reason we had the conversation. All right, podcast's over. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to get to one of the questions uh, that, that you had, Chad, and, and that's, I suppose, it, it kind of looking at, at, at some of the, at the original blog post and, and your talk, Ernie, you talked a lot about hustle, which in the startup world is like, it's it's the thing. I spent a month in San Francisco, and the number of times I heard hustle was um, nauseating. Um, you would have been you would have been smashing heads. But um, <laughs> at the same time, I, I have an appreciation for for that there is a sense of urgency, and that at at times we are living by the smell of an oily rag. And so, hustle whilst. Uh, not great is sometimes essential, but how, how do you balance these ideas of, of humane development and autonomy and, and things of actually we like there is, there needs to be a sense of urgency and there needs to be a push because, uh, you know, dollars run out and, sure. um, and investors get angry and all of those things, which is, it's an unfortunate reality of the businesses that we work. I would like with. to inject something before we let Ernie answer this. Hmm. Uh, and that is, do it. Um, one of the best managers I ever had early in my career, uh, on one of the best teams I was ever on, actually, I I recognized a trick that he employed, and his trick I, I don't really know how to reproduce it, but he was a master of creating a sense of urgency in our team. But when he was gone, it it wasn't that we were all sad because the art or that we were all happy because the artificial deadlines were gone. It was actually that we lacked a sense of urgency and we lacked these small tactical missions that we felt strongly pulled us together toward a common goal. So we ended up working kind of crazy hours sometimes, but we loved it. And when that manager left, we didn't have that anymore. And we actually even like talked about how can we, we create this sense of urgency again so that we can rally together. Nothing else had changed except for the guy that made up artificial deadlines and somehow inspired us to run after something left. Okay. So uh, with that with that setup, let's see how the best frame is. So I think I think too, um, when we talk about sense of urgency, um, there are I think a lot of us mean very very different things. That is, um, you can have an overdeveloped sense of urgency at times. That is, there there are times that we act in urgency, and I use an example in my talk that probably everybody can relate to when I RM-RF'd something, but I was a directory too high, and I was trying to urgently act to fix an issue, then it actually made things worse because I didn't understand, um, you know, what we lost as a business um, thoroughly enough if I, if I acted too quickly. Um, now, that's, that's perhaps, a, you know, you know, oversimplification, but uh, 
what I what I sort of have come come to believe is that all too often when we are acting out of a quote unquote sense of urgency for whatever that means, sometimes those are those are fear-based responses, right? And and in those cases where it needs you have to gut check, right? Is it just I am um, aggressively pursuing some something, or is it I am running from failure? And I think that all too often, in fact, I was looking up. Uh, I guess the the term sense of urgency originated in a book that that uh, was of the same name, or at least uh, you know that's that's the understanding that I got when I did the brief bit of research on this sense of urgency thing and. Uh, in the way that it was described, it was constantly like, well, you have competitors and they're chasing you and you need to act as though they're catching you and you need to, and like, I understand, I understand the goal, but I don't necessarily think that actions that come from a place of fear are necessarily the, it's necessarily the best way to drive action. Um, and so that is sort of has a negative connotation to me and that it isn't that if you have trust, um, then you've earned it and it shouldn't be perceived. I, I think that, that all too often we think that people aren't acting with a sense of urgency if we don't see them, um, uh, acting, you know, as I'm miming, you know, programming on, on the keyboard right now. Um, and that's not, that's, that's really hard to gauge with people who are working by thinking, um, but you know, you know, it's one of those things. You know it when you see it, right? You you know people who, who have that, and I can see Chad kind of formulating a, uh, a very thoughtful sort of disagreement over there <laughs> at the moment. Uh, no, I'm not disagreeing. I'm just not satisfied. But I don't, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Have a, sol- a solution or a suggestion either. Yeah, it's not that urgency is bad. Um, it's certainly, certainly not. But it's, it's more about. For me, anyway, it's more about where is it coming from, and I don't know. Like for me, I wouldn't have necessarily thrived in that in that situation that you were in, Chad, because we're different different humans. But I mean, um, being in a position where I felt that the deadlines pulled us together, but maybe weren't real, uh, I, I think that what you were sensing may have been less the deadline, but the shared purpose, the shared Absolutely. goal, right? Yeah. And so the focus wasn't so much on the deadline, but rather we are pulling together to a shared purpose. And that sounds like you had uh, a phenomenal team and a phenomenal leader to create that. But um, it was probably articulating those deadlines in a way that made them um, supportable for you, like something that you could get behind. Yeah, that's it. That's what we're missing was the sense of shared purpose. And that actually is some of the stuff that goes into Andrew's question, like he was saying, investors get angry or, or whatever the case. Um, of course they get angry if things aren't going well. And as a member of the team, you should care, regardless of what your position is, mm-hmm. that your company's performance has disappointed the people who've put money into it and believed in it and, and hoped that it would be profitable for them. So there would be a sense of shared purpose in not necessarily making the investors happy, but changing a situation so that everyone would be happy with it. Yeah. And I think I unfortunately come from a pretty uh, privileged place in, in that regard because uh, at Invisium we're bootstrapped still and we're profitable that way. And that gives us a lot more flexibility sort of in the, in the way that we approach things and that we're not beholden to uh, uh, an investor per se. Certainly we need to make payroll, but it's a different kind of pressure and it's a natural pressure. Yeah, but you uh, have clients. So clients are the same thing, right? You, they can, they can sure. create pressure. But I don't do you. consulting. So since I'm not doing the consulting, I'm, <laughs> I mean, certainly I'm supporting the consultants. So there's a, you know, in, inward kind of pressure from, from the clients, but it's, it's, a, it's, it's the same, but then it feels it, it, it tangibly, there's something tangibly different about it to, to the way that it impacts me day to day. So I, I want to kind of, come into land in a little bit, but I wanted to also look at, um, that from a, you, you both actually three of us now are in a position where we are responsible for technical people and hiring them. And, and how do we, uh, how do we find people who are more naturally suited to this style of working and who are going to buy into this, um, 
how do you how do you find these people? And um, I, I was reflecting a little bit on, I suppose, your work, Chad, with the passionate programmer, and then reading through. Um, I was rereading Avdi Grimm's uh, the moderately enthusiastic programmer, and and then his his stuff on the passion gospel, and and it was interesting how it tied into this because I felt like when I didn't apply empathy, I was the passionate, like the passionate in the terms of the um, the brash and uh, hot blooded programmer, if you will, um, and, and not in the sense of of actually caring and, and doing good work, but actually being hot-blooded and passionate about process without necessarily much thought or empathy. But how do you find the right people that, that are that right mix or do you have to make them? Mm, I don't know if you can make them. And, and when I say make them, I, I, I mean create them rather than force them. Yeah. It's, so you're not talking about actually procreation, are you? Because <laughs> that might work actually, but it would take a long time. <laughs> <laughs> no comment, I suppose. Okay. So, okay. I'll take that as a no. Uh, yeah, I don't think you can create them. I think you can create an environment where people like that can thrive. Uh, I do think that most people are capable of, of thinking this way. I'm not one of those people that thinks anyone can do anything they put their mind to because we're not all the same. That's just not true. But I think most people are capable of learning to be empathetic and, you know, following these, these humane development values. Um, but there is a context in which it's going to happen for them. So, you know, when I was 20, I probably wasn't like this. I was mean and I wasn't empathetic and I just thought people were stupid if they didn't understand what I knew and I wasn't ready for it. So I wouldn't have fit in very well in the environment that I'm creating now. And I wouldn't have impressed my present self very much had I been able to meet myself and interview me. But uh, I, I don't think there's any way to take someone who's not ready and change them uh, unless you already, for some reason, have a very close relationship with them. And you can like be harsh and kind of tough love them into it. Otherwise, I think it's just a matter of um, advertising that this is what you're looking for, for an organization. And th these are the values that you want to share with a team. And then attracting people who are interested in that first. So like I had written this blog post called Who I Want to Hire uh, a couple of years ago now, where I kind of, it's not all about this humane development stuff, but it smells like it could have been written by Ernie in, on the same day that he wrote the human-driven human development post. Um, and I've posted that a few times, and it even shows up on sites like Hacker News unexpectedly on occasion. And when it does, uh, I mention, really, I don't care what you do. If you want to come work with us, I want to know you anyway. And also, if you want to come work with us, please come. Uh, because what I have described is a, a person in a mindset more than a technologist. Um, and hopefully then let everyone in the outside world, but also on my current team who surely saw my blog post, know what, is, what it is I'm looking to foster here as a leader in our organization. Mm. And can I just weigh in on something? Because I'm sure, um, and I, I, I can't speak for Chad, but I know Chad would never, would never say this uh, himself. But something that, that absolutely kills me when I read, and and I actually like Avdi quite a bit too, but I think that uh, what Avdi is responding to is not, for instance, passion as Chad ever ever stated it or intended it. I think that, again, that term has been subverted to say we want people that will work whatever hours we want and then some um, because they care so much. And that really, it was more about finding, at least having read the book, it was more about finding um, kind of joy and meaning in your work and, and, and enjoying that, that process for what it is more than making your entire life about software development per se. Um, I, oh, yeah. And, and, and Avdi makes that clear in, in his, his blog post that he's, he's not having a go at, at Chad. 
Right. Um, so, but the term, the term has become subverted in some, some ways. And I find that the, the pushback against the term passionate, like I still describe myself as a passionate developer. Um, and I don't know if it means the same thing today as it used to when I say it, but I know what it means to me. Yeah. And, you know, I, I love what I do. I see it as a creative outlet. I got into it because it was a creative outlet less than that. It was science, you know, and, and so I think that as someone who wants to create, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm passionate about doing that. Um, as are most people who create, I don't think that makes me a, a person who is ripe for exploitation. However, I think I've, you know, kind of proven quite the opposite in that regard. Yeah, I don't much care about how people interpret that term anymore, as long as no one's trapped by it. But, uh, right. and I also don't think Obdi was at all arguing against the things that I, I advocate, at least specifically in that that case. I'm sure he would argue against some things I advocate, but I don't know. Mm. Um, but yeah, it really is about like the love of programming. And for me, it was... Uh, a contrast to growing up in an industry filled primarily with people who just didn't give a crap. So mm. it didn't really make sense to be the I do give a crap programmer that that didn't work very well. So instead I called <laughs> it the passionate programmer. Right. Yeah, you're not you're not doing programming as a perfunctory task, right? It's something that you you are engaged in and you're you're interested in. Um and, and you know, honestly, I think that and I, I, it's been a while since I've read Avdi's post, but I know um, part of it was, you know, I do this so that I can spend time with my family, something to that effect. It's not something that I want to make an end in and of itself. Is that a reasonable kind of restatement of some of the problem that he had with the passion gospel, as it were? I think so. Yeah, yeah. there's definitely, there's okay. definitely um, elements of that. So for me, if I'm going to spend at minimum uh, a third of my uh, day, you know, say I spend an eight-hour day, and really half of my waking hours... Um, doing a task, I want to make sure it's something I enjoy. Um, I, I personally don't want to give up 50% of my waking hours to something that, you know, is just a means to an end necessarily. I'd like to try to find a way to bring some joy to it. So to me, you know, even though maybe the term has been, term has been abused in recent years, uh, passion still, still applies. And I think we might be just good to, to wrap up with, so Humane development is is becoming a thing. You're talking about it at at uh, Rails RailsConf, Conf. yeah. Um, and it now has a website, which is apparently a draft. Um, <laughs> it has a T-shirt, a living draft. We'll oh, say. it has a T-shirt. It has a T-shirt. I I've ordered a T-shirt. Can can people get on board to get a T-shirt again? I, like, is there a is there I a second think, chance? I am a total noob at Teespring, but I think that yes, you can. Like, if you go to uh, uh, teespring.com slash humane underscore development, there's a. Uh, there's a link that says, wait, I still want one. And I think if you click that and like 35 people click that, they'll do another run. So, uh, okay. So we have, at this point we have 11 subscribers, so we could get like one third of the way there to having a new, new run of t-shirts. <laughs> is it, is it possible to generate a humane development onesie? <laughs> there, you know, I think the Teespring offers that. Yes. Oh my God. We got to do it. Imagine how many of those we could sell. There are so many babies, people procreating all over the place. Oh, no, wait and, a second. I'm talking about adult, uh, adult onesies. Oh, an adult onesie? Oh, my goodness. Well, imagine, no, I don't imagine think Imagine the are crowd at RailsConf. Walking around in, in, in onesies. Humane development onesies. Wow. I don't know if I want to oh, imagine wow. that. That's kind of freaking me out right now. So apart from wearing our humane development t-shirts, what, what, what do you see as the way forward for, for this? Is it, I mean... Is it just being more empathetic or is it how do we share these ideals and, and create the utopia that we dream of? So, <laughs> the utopia that we dream of. Yeah, we're going to solve that on this podcast. You have high and lofty goals, Mr. Harvey. Um, so to create the utopia that we dream of, we talk, right? It's about communication. We talk about this stuff. We talk about it in ways that others can relate. We talk to our bosses about it. Um, if we are a boss, we talk to our team about it. Um, you know, this is not, I mean, it's a discussion, right? It's, it's about, it's all about people. And, and I think that, uh, this is really just, you know, the first kind of 
time that, you know, uh, I've ever tried to wrap a term around something and drive it. I know that my goal this year is that more people start talking about humane development or maybe trying to build a humane development shop. Uh, I don't know what that looks like just yet. I'm still figuring it out myself because I'm trying to build one. Um, but I want to, I want to engage. Uh, there's also a hashtag, uh, humane dev. Uh, you can use that on Twitter if you want to talk about it. I'm going to put a bunch of this stuff on a resources section of the site as well. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's all about talking and we've just done that for an hour. So yay us. <laughs> Rock and roll. Well, thank you so much, uh, you two, uh, for, for chatting, for being part of the first real not code podcast. Thank you for having, having us. Me. Yeah, and thanks for giving me a chance to see Chad face to face, talk to him for a little while again. It's always a pleasure, Chad. Oh, same here. And now I've learned even more about you, so that I can continue on my quest to be to uh, maintain my status as the world's leading expert in Ernie Miller. I thought it was sharks. How did it turn into Ernie Miller? Sharks is is so 2012. Okay. <laughs> so if you're listening to this, find me on LinkedIn. And, and link me in or whatever they call it and then endorse me for Ernie Miller. <laughs>